Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we speak with an author of a new book about grief rituals and how they're practiced here in the mountains. Appalachian culture and the way we've preserved some of our traditions in ways that other areas of the country haven't means that our region that I'm so proud to be a part of has something really insightful and beautiful to offer the world. And a new study recently found a majority of Americans are not on track to comfortably pay for retirement. We check in with the National Council on Aging about preparing for the end of our work life. People are underestimating how long they're going to live and definitely underestimate how long conversations comes. And we talk with podcaster Abe Partridge about an Appalachian art that goes unheard by most people, the religious music of snake handling churches. It's always been music first. That was my that was my goal. But I mean, I will tell you this: if it was just about the music, I wouldn't still be going. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Rachel Held Evans was a best-selling author, columnist, and blogger who wrote extensively about modern Christianity in America. She was considered a voice for young progressive Christians. In May of 2019, she unexpectedly passed away following an allergic reaction to medication for an infection. She was 37. Her death was a shock to her fans and followers. And it was a terrible blow to her sister, Amanda Held Opelt, Boone, North Carolina. Opelt is also a writer. The loss of her sister prompted her to set out on a study of mourning, including grief rituals in Appalachia. Producer Bill Lynch spoke with Opelt about her sister and writing about grief while grieving. Your book starts the loss of your sister. So yeah, that's right. lots of people knew your sister from her blog and, and her books. Tell me about your sister, Rachel. Well, I mean, she was the best big sister you could possibly imagine. She was, she was protective. She was fun-loving. She was just the kind of person that wanted to see everyone around her shine and excel. And, and we were just so, so proud of each other. I think that, you know, one thing that I think is hard when someone who is well-loved and well-known passes away and everyone has wonderful, beautiful thoughts and memories towards them, um, but maybe the people that know them behind closed doors think, oh, well, if you really knew them, you wouldn't think so highly of her. I feel so fortunate that my experience of my sister matches the experience that other people had of her. She was who she was in public, in private. She was authentic and real and genuine with the people um, who knew her. She was authentic through her words, through her teaching. And so we're not mourning two separate people. We're mourning the same person. She she was a person of integrity and deep, deep kindness, and, and I'm so thankful for that. Okay. Well, she was a, a public person, the blog, uh, an author. Yeah. Um, you went a different direction, I think. Talk a little about you know, your background, and you've seen some pretty you know, dicey situations. You've, you know, you, you've been places where awful things have happened. Yeah. You know, I've always been a little bit of a creative person, a a songwriter, and and done some dabbling in writing as well. Um, But shortly uh, after, people probably remember the Indonesian tsunami um, in 2004 and 2005 was when that all uh, occurred. And I did a relief trip during college to India to kind of address some of the needs there. And I guess the international humanitarian aid bug bit me. So I went and spent a little bit more time in India, then worked in social services and nonprofit with uh, uh, economically underprivileged women in the United States, and then went uh, to work for an aid organization for about 10 years. That job took me all over the world um, experiencing some of the worst disasters and uh, greatest human tragedies that have been on the news in the last uh, 10 years. I think what's interesting, though, is you think when you live and work in such close proximity to 
human suffering and catastrophes that you'll be prepared for it when it hits you in a personal way. And I think that was one of the most shocking things about grief for me is that I felt like such a novice going into my own loss story and my own grief story. And that was when I really had to turn back to kind of the more creative expressions and and writing and songwriting to help me process what I was experiencing in my own life. And even then, as I processed my own grief, I was found myself going deeper into processing the things that I'd witnessed around the world as well. And that's really how the book came to be. Right. The, the book is, you know, reads as kind of uh, as part catharsis and, you know, dealing with your own grief and also exploration of, uh, of grief rituals. Yeah. How did it feel to write this stuff down? You know, I think that I'm the kind of person that tends to uh, respond to um, disorientation or chaos or emotional chaos and grief with, um, I kind of intellectualize things, mm-hmm. and I, I, I tend to take an academic approach and, and, and study what's going on, and I don't know if that's healthy or not, but mm-hmm. that, I think, is how I became interested in grief rituals. Um, I always tell people, you know how our phones sometimes know us better than we know ourselves? Well, my phone knew that I was grieving, I guess, because it sent along on the algorithm uh, an article about strange and unusual grief rituals from around the world. And I, I clicked on it, and that sent me down this beautiful, interesting, mysterious, strange rabbit hole that I'm still stuck in in some ways. Um, just learning about the ways people throughout history have communally processed um, their grief. And so, you know, I, I think that part of it started more as like a, just a personal exploration. And I found that by studying historic grief rituals and grief rituals from around the world, it, it somehow uh, enabled me to name and identify those chaotic emotions I was feeling in a way that no other tool in the Western world had helped me do. And so that's kind of why I began picking up books and listening to podcasts and Googling and um, all of the, the things I could do just to get my hands on whatever kind of uh, study of grief rituals I could find. And that's when I just began journaling about what I was learning and reflecting, and and that's when I went to my agent and said, hey, I know I'm working on another book right now, but could I table that for a while, and and maybe this would be more helpful to the world in light of the COVID-19 crisis that Mm -hmm. had just uh, transpired and the, 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 the kind of global grief we were all experiencing. And she said, go for it. I don't know who will publish a book about grief rituals, but I was really pleased that there was so much support and interest in it. Any surprises, I guess, in the research and things you were looking at, the different podcasts and the readings and things? Well, I was very, very interested in why grief rituals persist throughout other cultures around the world and why they have disappeared in the Western world and and kind of American culture. Why, Why have they disappeared so much? Why do we have so few grief rituals remaining? And part of that is that, you know, as culture kind of amalgamates and, and we have this kind of blend of cultures, some of these rituals and traditions and superstitions get watered down. Um, we're also very uh, kind of modernity has done its work in the Western world uh, in, in the sense that we, we kind of tend to take a scientific approach to sickness and death and loss. And so some of those more mystical or superstitious type of rituals no longer seem valid or no longer seem needed. What, what, what's the, the value in them, we might say. Um, we're also, there's a lot of decline in religious practices, and many, many grief rituals are um, kind of held and stewarded by religious institutions. And as those go away, as we deinstitutionalize, we lose the rituals that go with it. And so that was what was surprising to me. And what was what was such a beautiful surprise was how so many grief rituals have actually persisted in Appalachia, in whereas they disappeared in other regions of the United States. And that was just such a delight uh, to me to see how Appalachian culture and the way we've preserved some of our traditions in ways that other areas of the country hasn't means that our region that I'm so proud to be a part of has something really insightful and beautiful to offer the world. Why do you think that Appalachians managed to preserve their grief rituals, at least uh, most of them or some of them? I, I think that in many ways they've been preserved for a lot of the, a lot of the reason our, our other traditions are preserved. You know, the, the, the accents are preserved and some of the, the, the food ways and the music that gets preserved in Appalachia is 
is the isolation. You know, I, a lot of times I, it's interesting people think of either the, the mountains as um, locking people in or else you could also think of them as kind of a, a protective preserver of culture. And so, you know, we see practices like tolling the bell um, continue to persist in Appalachia through the 1950s even. Um, that was used as a way of announcing to the community throughout America and Europe that someone had died uh, and, and they would toll the number of years that the person lived, and that's how you knew someone, um, uh, who, the, who the person had died. But when, you know, phones and newspapers and all these things came to the rest of the modernized world, tolling the bell went away. But we didn't ha- always have that in Appalachia. Those things came slower to Appalachia. And so that this beautiful tradition of solemnly and respectfully tolling a bell to, to, to show reverence for someone's life um, continued. Um, Decoration Day is one of my favorite um, practices that I studied. And, and, you know, I still get invited to Decoration Day at my old family cemetery over in Bakersville, North Carolina. Hmm. And it's this practice of annually um, for these small family graveyards or small church graveyards, the entire extended family and kinfolk net- network come and clean the graves and decorate all the graves of all their ancestors. And everyone remembers their lost loved ones collectively. It's a day of mourning, but it's also a day of celebration. And there's food and there's music and there's preaching and there's praying and there's story sharing. And um, it's beginning to die out in this region. Um, but that's part of the passion that went into the book was to say, I'd love to shed light on this beautiful tradition and hope that young people my age would continue it and would see the value in it. With the dying off of some of these rituals, are any of them being replaced? Are, are we picking up new rituals, I guess, in the 21st century? Are we just letting go of rituals altogether? Well, that's what kind of scares me, is that it feels like we're losing so many grief rituals without replacing them. Now, I, do, I have seen, and, and it is interesting to look at um, things that people do now that that we, we weren't able to do before, um, posting messages on someone's Facebook wall, for example, when they pass away, and that being kind of this hub of, of shared memories and tributes. And that's kind of a beautiful, I think, ritual of using social media to pay tribute to someone's life. But beyond that, you know, the the six months of wearing mourning attire, wearing black, or two years for a widow of wearing black has gone away, and we get a week's bereavement leave at mm. work. You know what I mean? Um, right. It's so much more um, condensed and truncated, uh, and, and wakes, which used to be all night and an all-day affair, have been, again, truncated to a two-hour visitation that feels very rushed and very hurried. And so part of it is just the pace at which our culture moves, that we're just in a hurry to move forward, to move on. And so what we need, I think, are, are, is just time, and we need the, these, these rituals to, to help us absorb the new reality instead of quickly trying to efficiently move past it like we do with so many other things in our lives. Where do you go from here? Uh, I have a new book coming out over the summer called uh, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. And it's kind of about some of the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like and what do we do when kind of life goes sideways and we didn't see it coming and can we make a good life out of disappointment. And that's that's the book that I have uh, coming out. But I am interested in, in my future career. I, I was just so... Um, enamored, I guess, and and impressed and inspired by the way that Appalachian culture uh, can contribute to the conversation at large and where our country's moving and how um, the old ways of practicing life in the region that I love can actually have something to say and inform our country and our, our culture at large about. So those are some ideas I have for future projects about studying just Appalachian culture and Appalachian practices and kind of our relationship to the land and the communal identity and what might that have to say to to the world and what might the world have to learn from this region. The book is called A Hole in the World. Amanda, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bill. Mom.
national conversation over guns has gotten even more intense in recent months, including arguments about where and when people can carry guns on college campuses. This year, West Virginia lawmakers passed a bill to specifically require all public colleges and universities to allow concealed weapons in certain areas. Along with Utah, West Virginia is only the second state to enact such a law. WVPB's Randy Yoey explores concerns about the new law, set to take effect July 2024. On the state's western border, Marshall University enrollment is a little more than 13,000. In the eastern panhandle, the student count at Shepherd University is just over 3,000. Both schools have campus carry committees and task forces, including administrators, faculty, staff, and students. Marshall Director of Public Safety Jim Terry says there are a wide variety of policy decisions on the table. We have a small group of senior leadership, and then we've put together an action learning team made up of uh, constituents from every facet of the university to go out and look at best practice, best policy. Holly Morgan Fry, Vice President for Student Affairs and the Director of Community Relations at Shepherd University, says her school's campus carry task force also includes attorneys and members of the Residence Life Team. Both schools now allow no firearms on campus. SB 10 will permit concealed carry in classrooms and public areas, not in stadiums and daycare facilities. Fry says Shepherd's key concern highlights student mental health and suicide issues. Everybody knows that the mental health issues on a college campus are on an increase. Um, we are getting ready to hire a fourth counselor. We have a enrollment of more than, a little more than 3,000, um, and we feel that it's critical that we have that fourth counselor because of the mental health issues. Leaving the Marshall Memorial Student Center, senior Abby McBrayer says the chilling, anxious effect of COVID-19 still lingers on campus. And she says campus carry could make it worse. And I know a lot of people my age are like, they still feel uncomfortable being out on campus and going to like classrooms and things like that. And I think knowing that somebody could just have a gun in a classroom is kind of going to add to that. And then, I mean, our counseling services are already kind of bogged down. Fry said she worries whether campus carry will affect enrollment for border schools like Shepherd. She believes the cost of ensuring campus safety will demand a larger police force. Terry says the initial estimate for Marshall's firearm security could reach $400,000, while Fry says the Shepherd cost could be several times that. Both point to residence halls, where guns are not allowed in dorm rooms, but are allowed in lunch rooms and lounges. I think that we're going to have to be providing... Um in order for any of our residential students who choose to carry to be able to lock those uh, guns away when they're not or when they're in their uh, residential rooms. Very much of a challenge and we have already heard from our residential assistants um, their concerns about how they will manage that. For example, what will they do if they see somebody who has a gun? What will they see? What will they? What will be the process? Chief Terry says the school will have to create a new firearms policy when secondary school-age visitors use campus facilities and with campus buildings jointly owned by public and private entities. He says there are no provisions in the law made for violation of campus carry policies, civil or criminal. We're going to have to get with the prosecutor because there is, and you read it, there is no criminal statutes. There's no penalties attached to that code. So we'll have to use existing code. So if a student, because the way the code's written, it has to be concealed at all times, that can't be visible. So if a, a person sees half a holster sticking out from underneath a jacket and they call in, he's not violated the law. Uh, if he brandishes it, use it in a threatening manner, then we have charges for that. But we have nothing in place for uh, the shirt riding up or something like that. Marshall freshman Jonathan Willman agrees with all the safeguards and security measures needed, but he sees campus carry as a defensive necessity. I plan to carry myself when I when I get my concealed carry license. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with people defending themselves. The people that legally uh, went and got licenses and concealed carry, those aren't the people you have to worry about. It's the people that break the laws, you know, because if you're shooting up school, you're, gonna, you're breaking the law anyway. So I think that allowing kids to be able to defend themselves from people like that that are already breaking the law and shooting up schools and campuses. SB 10, the Campus Self-Defense Act, goes into effect July 1st, 2024. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie. Coming up, 
saving for retirement means more than just stashing away cash for travel and indulging the grandkids. What about the basic cost of living? Um, It's one of the things people don't like to talk about. We don't like to talk about the fact that we may need help getting around our community. We need help getting around our house uh, or making our meals. That's after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. New study by Fidelity Investments found that more than half of Americans are not on track for a comfortable retirement. It's not just millennials and Gen Xers either. Many older adults don't have enough money to retire. WVPB News Director Eric Douglas spoke with Josh Hodges, Chief Customer Officer for the National Council on Aging, to learn about what help is available for retirees and caregivers. So what are some of the basics? What are some of the tips that people need to know as they're getting older, as they're getting into retirement age to just care for themselves and 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 plan for the the future? Well, there are, you know, there are two major drivers of kind of running out of money, so to speak, in, in older adult space. And it really is first longevity. People live longer than they expect. If you're a 65 year old, there's a very decent chance you're gonna live to be 85 or 90. Uh, that's especially true for women. Uh, there's also long-term care costs, so longevity, and then the cost of care later in life. Um, as as any caregiver knows, long-term care is you know is a series of there's not it's not a specific definition, but it's a series of caregiving opportunities that you need to help an older adult continue or help anybody continue to live either in a home in their home or in in a in a uh, assisted living facility type type place. And long-term care can be extremely expensive. Um, it's one of the things people don't like to talk about. We don't like to talk about the fact that we may need help getting around our community. We need help getting around our house um, or making our meals. And and so we, we don't, as a society, like to talk about those things. And so the fact that people are living longer than they expect to and that there are much higher costs in long-term care really are driving the fact that many older adults age into poverty. Let's talk about some of those those programs, some of the ways that, that seniors can stretch their dollars to, to survive 20, 30 years without uh, a direct income stream other than retirements and Social Security? So, you know, I would view some of these programs as supplements, opportunities to, to help help you um, make those dollars work. So, for example, there are a number of programs to help you pay for Medicare. Medicare is not free. Many people think it's free. Many people think it's the, the, the this free program at the end of their life that they have access to. There are premiums. There are co-pays. There are drug costs. To it, and each of those different areas have have programs to help low income older adults pay for pay for those things. So, uh, uh, one program to help pay for prescription drugs can save somebody an average of five thousand dollars a year. Now, imagine you're a, you're an older adult living on poverty, living at you know twelve, fourteen, fifteen, uh, twenty thousand dollars a year. Five thousand dollars in your pocket is pretty significant, and and it gets you access to the drugs. What we don't want is what happens in this society is that people trade off their medication for their food, for their housing. They're making these, these incredibly challenging trade-offs. And so having the opportunity to actually connect to these programs that help pay for food, pay for housing, pay for electricity, pay for your Medicare are, are opportunities that we really want to make sure older adults understand. What, what's the scale? I mean, you know, when you see TV advertising, you see happy senior citizens out traveling the world and going on vacation, whatever. I think we all know in the back of our heads that that's that's not reality for most people. But do you have any sense of the scale of how many people are just kind of eking by versus the the ones who are living living their best retirements? You know, our our data shows tens of millions of older adults are barely making ends meet. 
And and yes, what you're describing, the idealized retirement, you get your gold watch after 40 years in a corporate job, then you move off to the Bahamas and you have a nice drink with an umbrella. That's not the reality for many, many people in this country because, you know, because there are just so many different costs at play here. And because, again, people are underestimating how long they're going to live and definitely underestimating how long how much things cost. So these programs are talking about there are 30 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars left on the table every year. So these are these are these are these are dollars that older adults do qualify for, but aren't actually applying and getting benefits because many of them don't even many older adults don't even know these programs exist. I, I know just the and and trying to care for my mom, uh, that was one of the issues that I kept running into was I didn't have a clue how to even get started with that kind of stuff. Where what where should where does somebody go to to learn about these programs and get get signed up or get registered, get whatever, get in the system to take advantage of them. Yeah, I, I think you, you really identified the first major hurdle, just knowledge of these programs. So NCOA, National Council on Aging, runs a website, benefitscheckup.org, that actually helps people understand what benefits they may qualify for. Now, we're a nonprofit. We're not trying to sell you anything. We're not trying to collect your information. We're not going to even ask you your email address. We're just going to ask you some basic demographic information about you, about yourself, what zip code you live in, how many people live in your household, whether you're a veteran or not, because some of these programs are, are, are dependent on veterans or uh, stature. And so I think the reality is you, you use this website. It gives you a sense of what programs you may qualify for. Then we connect you to where you actually apply for the benefits. What's the numbers we're talking about? What, what does the average older American qualify for? Average is a hard, hard thing to do. Many we see many older adults who qualify, who are lower income, qualify for programs like the Medicare Savings Plan or, or Extra Help. These are programs to help pay for your Medicare. Extra Help is a program to help pay for your prescription drugs. We see numbers above five thousand dollars a year. Now it depends on what drugs you're on, what prescription drugs you're on. It depends on your individual situations. But we're not talking about pennies here. We're talking about hundreds, not thousands of dollars. What haven't we talked about? What have we missed? So I, I think you know. There are really two things to stop people from applying for these benefits. The first is knowledge. Uh, and, and, and so that's one of our goals, get information out there. The second is this, this thought that there are people out there who need the benefits more than me. I shouldn't apply because I'm doing okay. But these programs expand to meet the eligible individuals. So if you don't apply for the benefit that you would qualify for, somebody else doesn't get more money. These, these programs expand to meet the, 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 the eligible population. So don't let that stop you as an older adult. Don't, don't let that you know, not allow you to prevent to uh, apply for these benefits because these benefits are there for people at all sorts of different income levels. That was Josh Hodges from the National Council on Aging speaking with Eric Douglas. The interview is part of the series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents. To read or hear more, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Since 2010, nearly 150 rural hospitals have closed. They're victims to the financial stresses facing U.S. healthcare. On the latest episode of Us and Them, host Trey Kay looks at the challenges facing rural childbirth and obstetric care. In addition to all the closures, about 10% of rural hospitals have stopped delivering babies, and that's forced a lot of families to make tough decisions. Here's an excerpt from the podcast. The hospital is currently in bankruptcy and had several potential buyers. However, when the COVID-19 crisis picked up, those potential buyers had to shift focus away from the purchase to deal with the pandemic. COVID really created um, a kind of domino effect to rural hospitals. Beds not available, patients were being transferred um, all over to different parts of the state or even different states for treatment. Um, And just access was a big issue. That's Dr. Dino Beckett. He's an osteopathic physician and CEO of Williamson Health and Wellness Center. Because what happened was there was this demand for nurses, respiratory therapists, all these medical professionals, as well as physicians all over. And then what happened is in in bigger population centers, they had this shortage of staffing. So they started, you know, looking at travel nurses. So they offered these opportunities for people. So a lot of the rural nurses we're looking at these opportunities that are making a lot of money to go sign a contract to work for a travel agency. So they go for that because, I mean, financially, it's, it's a good decision for them and they're gone for a period of time and then come back. But it leaves a, a void here, create a vacuum to where we started losing care here. And, and that's still not settled out yet. 
We're sitting in Beckett's clinic in downtown Williamson, West Virginia, which he opened a little over a decade ago. It's one of the only places in the area where people can get basic health care. Growing up, there were, you know, all types of physicians in the downtown area. You know, um, the population has has gradually declined. But during the years, we've seen that also play out with uh, physicians. A shortage of doctors is not a new issue in rural communities. In the 1990s and early 2000s, many West Virginia towns struggled to attract American doctors. The problem became so bad, the U.S. Agriculture Department sponsored visas for thousands of doctors from other countries to come and work here in small-town America. We had a lot of docs from India, Pakistan, and, and the Philippines, particularly you know, in our area. We have lots of doctors that were Filipinos that had gone to med school and, and came to our area. There was an abundance of primary care, but then we also had a lot of specialty care here as well. And uh, over the years, that's kind of dwindled down to where now you have your centers of treatment. So you're referring a lot out as opposed to what we were able to use to take care of at home before. And for struggling rural hospitals, obstetric and prenatal services tend to be some of the first on the chopping block. That's exactly what happened to Williamson's Hospital back in 2014. Yeah, well, I mean, none of us were happy. Um, I mean, none of the staff was happy. Obviously, the community, you know, two of my children were born at that hospital. So it was, you know, something that that we didn't want to do. But, you know, we weren't the ones calling the shots. And I mean, when you look at it financially, it was just one of the things that they couldn't provide other services if they continued to do those. And then it would put us at further risk of, of closure. In the following years, 89 rural hospitals across the country closed their obstetric units. And when medical options shrink, families have to make hard decisions about how and where to get care. Going back to challenges, whether it's, you know, socioeconomic challenges for people that, you know, I mean, maybe they would have to relocate to an area because they can't get access or it's instead of them having to drive so far to get that access, they want to move somewhere to where that's closer to the care that they would need. That's definitely a consideration or challenge that they may be experiencing. That's from the Yes and Them podcast. You can listen to the whole episode at wvpublic.org or find it on your favorite podcast app. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation. On Christmas Eve 2018, a fire occurred at U.S. Steel's Clareton Coke Works, which bakes coal at high temperatures as part of the steelmaking process. The blaze crippled the plant's pollution controls and exposed thousands of people near Pittsburgh to sulfur and particle pollution. A lawsuit over the fire was set to go to trial, but now there's a settlement. Kara Hilsopel and Reed Frazier with the Allegheny Front have more. A tentative agreement has been reached in a lawsuit over emissions from a coke plant. This is the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsapel. On Christmas Eve in 2018, a fire at U.S. Steel's Clareton Coke Works near Pittsburgh knocked out pollution controls for three and a half months, leading to high pollution levels in the region. A federal lawsuit filed over the fire and the subsequent air pollution has been settled. Our own Reed Frazier broke the story, and he joins me now to talk about it. Reed, remind us what caused the fire. The fire was a result of several things that went wrong all at the same time. There was, to begin with, a leaky roof in one of the plant's buildings. That leak led to corrosion on a pipe. That pipe wasn't fully inspected for years. The pipe finally broke, and when it landed, it broke open a line carrying oil and started the fire. There was a machine that had a metal rod called a rotor. That rotor was already 80% cracked when the fire began, and that led to more problems. Finally, a shutoff valve that should have stopped the flow of flammable gas into the room was rusted shut, and so the fire escalated quickly. How do we know all these details? Because there was a lawsuit, there was this process called discovery. And these details were made public only through this lawsuit. Penn Environment and the Clean Air Council, along with the Allegheny County Health Department, sued the company. They were the plaintiffs. And as part of the lawsuit, they got to examine U.S. Steel's own internal investigation. And in a deposition, 
that was made public because of this lawsuit, the county's lead investigator in air quality called the conditions in the plant decrepit and the worst he'd ever seen. What were the impacts of the fire? Well, basically, for four months, the plant was without its ability to siphon off sulfur gases from its Coke oven emissions. All it could do, since it wasn't willing to put the plant on idle, was to simply burn the gases off. And this isn't great because it creates sulfur dioxide, which is uh, very bad for your health. It basically burns the lining of your throat and lungs. And sulfur dioxide emissions went up, by some accounts, 4,500% on certain days. Asthma cases in the county got worse. There was more uh, hospitalization for people with asthma. And some people were told, told to just stay inside. The plaintiffs were asking for a record $42 million fine from U.S. Steel. What were some other things they asked for that you'll be looking for when the final agreement is made public? Well, they were seeking an order from the court that U.S. Steel ensure that something like this never happens again at this facility. The company had no backup system it could rely on when these pollution controls went out. They also wanted the company to submit to a third-party safety and operations audit, which U.S. Steel would have had to abide by as long as the costs to follow the recommendations didn't exceed a certain percentage of the company's earnings. And, you know, I'd like to see, besides however big a fine U.S. Steel has to pay, uh, which, you know, the company made $6 billion in profits the last two years, I don't think a $40 million fine is going to make or break it. What type of other things the company will agree to do? It's shut down three of its 10 Coke oven batteries at Clareton, which will reduce pollution from the plant by an estimated 15 to 20%. I wonder if this development will play into what the company agrees to do in its settlement. All right. Well, thanks, Reed. Thank you. Reed Frazier covers energy for the Allegheny Front. He says a court-imposed deadline gives the parties until May 1st to finalize the agreement. That's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsapel. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. Energy production is in flux right now. Coal's in decline as a power source. And while massive amounts of solar and wind are coming online, a lot of projects are stuck in a regulatory bottleneck. Natural gas is sort of in the middle. New plants are still being built, but there's a lot of opposition to it as a fossil fuel. So folks are eyeing new ways to produce energy. And there's a lot of focus right now on hydrogen. Depending on how you make it, it's potentially a carbon-free fuel. That's why Congress included $8 billion in the 2021 infrastructure bill to create several regional hydrogen hubs across the U.S., including at least one in Appalachia. These hydrogen hubs are intended to create networks of hydrogen producers, consumers, and related infrastructure. At least three groups submitted applications to try to win a hydrogen hub in Appalachia. One of them is the Appalachian Regional Clean Hydrogen Hub. It consists of private industry, state and local governments, academic and technology institutions, and other organizations from the northern Appalachia region that includes West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. Awardees are expected to be announced this fall. We're hearing music recorded inside Free Pentecostal House of Prayer in Gray, Kentucky where congregants handle serpents and drink poison as part of their worship services. When I first moved back to Appalachia in the early 2000s, I found a book called Salvation on Sand Mountain by Dennis Covington. Usually when you hear about snake handling, it's in an exploitative way, like the villains in a pulpy story. But Salvation on Sand Mountain is more empathetic. The folks who handle snakes come across like people you might know. And it turns out, they play a style of Appalachian music that's largely gone undocumented. That music is the subject of a podcast called Alabama Astronaut. Reporter Zach Harold spoke with co-host Abe Partridge about how a project intended to document this music ended up being about a whole lot more. This is a podcast about songs. Songs of them that believe the signs. This is Alabama Astronaut. 
By the way, the hiss you're hearing in this clip is actually the rattlesnakes that were in boxes up behind the Bible stand. There's a spirit that's come in to try to ruin this earth. I'll tell you this, whenever National Geographic's in there, they're hoping to God they bring out the snakes. When I'm in there, I'm hoping to God they don't bring out the snakes. <laughs> Those are some clips from Alabama Astronaut, one of the most engrossing podcasts I've heard in a long time. And I have the co-creator and subject of that podcast with me. A Partridge, I don't want to spoil anything, but can you give us a brief introduction on how you became familiar with the world of snake handling churches? It, I guess it depends on how far we want to go back, but uh, I pastored in Middlesboro, Kentucky myself when I was uh, in my mid-20s. I went through a crisis of faith, I guess you could say, and I was in the process of leaving the church. And during that time, uh, I've, I met a guy by the name of Jamie Coots, who was pretty well known uh in the serpent handling faith. We probably had about a 30 or 45 minute conversation, but in that 30 or 45 minutes, it was a real striking conversation that I never forgot. And he gave me his phone number and actually, you know, told me, I think he knew that I was struggling. Well, I started playing songs and painting and stuff like that. And uh, I was touring on the West Coast with an artist by the name of Jerry Joseph and this other uh, Alabamian from about Birmingham named Will Stewart. And he had a song that he wrote called Rush Arbor. It had a line in it that it mentioned Copperheads and the Holy Ghost. Mm. And uh, I was, thought that was odd. And I asked Will what it was about. And he's like, it's about a book I read called Salvation on Sand Mountain. I read it at the beginning of the pandemic. And guess who's in it? Jamie Coots. So I said, I'm going to go find this a serpent handle in church, and I'm going to go. Well, I found a few, and at every one that I went to, I'd heard songs that I never knew, that I never heard before, and I had spent uh, a large portion of my life in church. Uh, for people that haven't heard the podcast, what, mm -hmm. what makes it special compared to church music they might be familiar with? It differs, number one, in the lyrical content, um, these people happen to believe a certain passage of Scripture that's found in the book of Mark, uh, chapter 16, and verses uh, 18 and 19. What it is, is it's, it draws from Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And the last things that he told his disciples was that there were five signs that were going to follow them that believe. And uh, very quickly, the five are uh, casting out devils, laying hands on the sick, and they shall recover, speaking in tongues. They shall take up serpents, and then if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. Now, there are hundreds of millions of Pentecostals that exist on planet Earth, and Nearly all of those Pentecostals will do three of those signs, which is that speaking in tongues, the, they profess to cast out devils, and they profess to lay hands on the sick, and then they recover. But outside of these few believers, um, I don't, I'm not aware of any other ones in the world where they literally take up serpents and literally if they drink any deadly thing, if they consume a poison, that it does not hurt them. So whenever you hear a song that references those, you know that it had to originate within this sect of believers because there is literally no other sect of believers on planet Earth that falls under the realm of Christianity that believe these things. Be sick and cast the devil out. I'll take up serpents, drink the poison, dance and sing and shout. I believe in the word of Jesus Christ just like you told The musical style is also unique. How, how would you describe that? Dennis Covington wrote the book Salvation on Sound Mountain. He described it as a mixture of Salvation Army and Acid Rock. Yeah. And then other people have called it rockabilly, uh, you know, rock and roll, rock and roll sacred music. Um, there, I, I don't, I mean, I call it 
I call it uh, serpent hand, serpent handling gospel music. Is I I don't, uh, but you know they just call it music. So how is this tradition being passed down? Oh, it's just uh, it's the same way that music was passed down for all the centuries before uh, men that did not have access to means of recording. So person to person, church to church. Um, I have yet to meet a serpent handling musician that was trained uh, or had any type of formal training in music. They, they passed down both the... Uh, the songs and the style of their playing, uh, I guess you would say, orally. But you've got churches, you know, all the way from Alabama up, up into West Virginia. It's a pretty big swath of territory. Are the song the songs are getting passed from church to church? Uh, I, I don't know. Are they visiting one another and passing along songs? Like, how does that cultural exchange happen? The serpent handlers know each other. They often attend each other's. They have they some sometimes they have special meetings like they call them homecomings. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have meetings called revivals, and people will travel from the other churches to uh, to attend. But yeah, you can. Um, I've actually been in services before where if you listen to the audio, if I if I were to give you the audio recording of the service you would uh, assume that there was only one guitar player. But in actuality, there were multiple guitar players that they, they, they pass the guitar along, you know, as each one feels led. But they play the same style because they all, it, all, it all derives from their, their sacred music. Has there been a change over the years in the kind of music that the snake handling churches are playing, or or has it maintained some kind of consistency? There have been some few. I would I wouldn't call them changes. I would call them tweaks. With the in, with the introduction of electric instruments, there were there was a you know uh, probably in the sixties, uh, but before that even they they were playing acoustic instruments and they were playing the same type of songs that they're actually playing now. I mean, it's still actively right now in 2022 being passed down. And I've got, I've got uh, hundreds of hours of recordings that, that, uh, that, that show, uh, that show this kind of music being played back into the fifties. It seems the amount of like the depth that you've gone into all this, uh, is it all just about the music or is there something else behind it too? So it's always been music first. That was my, that was my goal. But I mean, I will tell you this, if it was just about the music, I wouldn't still be going. I've already got hundreds of hours of, of recordings. I could put a record out, but two weeks ago I was still there. It's, it's actually helped rekindle my own faith. I wouldn't say I would like to necessarily line out what that looks like and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to start picking up snakes. I have witnessed things in the moment. They felt absolutely supernatural. So what are you, you've got the recordings. Uh, what's the plan uh, to present those to the public? We have released the Coots Duo album, which is an album that we recorded inside of the full gospel tabernacle in Jesus' name in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, which is Jamie Coots's old church. Uh, with his son Cody and his wife Cassie, Cody happens to be a fourth-generation serpent handler, a serpent handling preacher, and songwriter. So, so we've recorded uh, music with them, and we've already put that out on our website. It's already available for download. the The goal in mind is to create a documentary record that is captured within the church. But uh, now we just uh, need to go through and I need to find the most powerful moments mm-hmm. and, and get these things mixed and mastered, which I do not personally have the skills to do. And uh, so that's where we're at right now. And let me tell you, when it gets done, it is going to blow your mind because it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's so good. 
this is one of the most compelling podcasts I've heard in a long time. It's Thank it you, it gives a a peek into a side of American culture that I don't think a whole lot of people have thought about. No. Uh, a lot of people don't even know exists. Right. And it handles it with such respect and like an apparent love of the subject matter. Yeah. It's not that it's it's not hard to treat them with respect. It's not hard. But it ne- it never gets done. I think what the overall theme is, is that there's a lot of people in this world. And like Dr. Hood said in the podcast, if we're going to have diversity in this country, then it requires a respect. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Zach. You can find Alabama Astronaut anywhere you find podcasts. That interview is part of our Folkways reporting project which explores arts and culture in the region. To hear that story again, or to listen to any of the other stories in the project, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Finally, Kentucky writer Ada Limon will serve another term as the U.S. Poet Laureate. This week, Librarian of Congress Carla Hayden announced that the Lexington poet will make history with a second two-year term. She'll be the first to serve two terms instead of the traditional one. Limon is the nation's 24th Poet Laureate. Her second term is set to begin in September. As Poet Laureate, Limon has started multiple projects since her term began in fall of 2022. She's collaborating with the National Park Service and the Poetry Society of America to present poems at the country's national parks. And she's writing a poem to be engraved on NASA's Europa Clipper mission spacecraft, which is set to be revealed June 1st. next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by David Mayfield, Jesse Milnes, Jeff Ellis, Little David, and Tyler Childers. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.